Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 948. At the top of today's show, David Lorela welcomes Frank Herman, former Cleveland and Philadelphia pitcher and current right-handed reliever for the Chiba Lote Marines. Frank shares what it has been like to play in Japan in recent seasons, from the league parody to the strange playoff structure to the numerous talented players, some of whom could end up stateside. David also asks Frank about his future after the game, as well as how former first-round pick Carter Stewart is doing by beginning his own pro career in Japan. He is going to soft bank. I'll say that he picked the right team because they do some things different developmentally. They've had driveline come over there and work with some of their guys. They do things different developmentally than a lot of these other teams that it's more old school where it's just, you know, the pitching coach is telling you, grip it like this and throw it like that. And, you know, you give such reverence to the coaches here that guys don't really go against the grain. They just have to kind of shake their head and follow the lead. After that, Eric Longenhagen chats with Ben Clemens, who has been very busy leading up to and after the release of the Top 50 Free Agents list this week. Eric and Ben chat about things like how the Top 50 was put together, how many Boris clients are near the top of the list, and how 40-man crunches around the league could match up with the Oakland A's looking to sell off. The pair also talk about some of the notable free agents on the list, including Mark Canna, Avisail Garcia, and Eric's pick for the best pitcher on the planet. And he, for the longest time, has been like the, you know, the aliens are playing a baseball game against us for our sovereignty. Who do we want pitching? Like, it's for me, that's been right. Max Scherzer for the last 10 years, basically. Uh, you know, Verlander and Kershaw, I guess, have, have been in the mix. Bumgarner, too. But consistently, it's just been Scherzer. But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is not only the best place to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can also get yourself or a friend an ad-free membership, which is the best way to both browse and support the site. We truly couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest is Frank Herman, former Cleveland Indians and Philadelphia Phillies reliever. And for the past five seasons, a pitcher for NPB's Rakuten Golden Eagles, and more recently, the Chiba Lote Marines. Frank, welcome to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me on, David. And I hope I got the pronunciation of those teams right. Rakuten Eagles is probably the most most common. The U is kind of, you just pretend like the U is not there, but... It was close enough. I, I think I think uh, relative to your listeners who probably never heard of it, I think you're doing fine. And Chiba Lote, is that correct? Chiba Lote Marines, yep. Ah, so I just hit 500 here, which is good. Yeah. To start, you just flew home from Japan to Tampa yesterday. So how long is that flight and uh, how is your jet lag going this morning? Yeah, I've been home less than 24 hours. I landed about 2 p.m. yesterday. It's uh, been about 22 hours. My jet lag is, is okay. You know, I've done this. This is my fifth year, as you said, so I've done this a bunch. And uh, I actually got to come home in um, July during the Olympic break. So I got a little a little break then. So I, I got some ways of working around it. But that being said, I've been up since 3 a.m. So I'm running, I'm running on fumes right now. I'm sure you are. Yeah, your team is currently playing in the postseason, Frank, but you were allowed to come home. I believe that you were injured. Yeah, my low back, it's kind of been on and off uh, for the past two years. I guess at 37, I'm uh, getting close where the the back comes on and off. I was able to appear in 45 games this year, but it cropped up at the end. And it's actually feeling better now, but the team just felt like I wouldn't be ready to uh, ramp up in time after some downtime. I haven't pitched in a game in about three and a half weeks. So to to be able to ramp up while we're essentially in the um, ALCS, our version of the ALCS there, they said, go home, be with your family. I wasn't able to bring my family for much of the last two years or all of the last two years over to Chiba. So I've been away from them for since late January. I think I saw them for 10 days in July. So that's been really difficult, and they're very understanding. They said, go home, be with your family, and you know, cheer us on from afar. You mentioned your team being in the equivalent of the ALCS. We should talk about the, the NPB postseason format a little because it is different. For instance, your club, uh, Chiba Lote, advanced beyond the first round with a win and a tie. Yeah, yep, that's correct. Uh, that would be a very foreign concept you know, pun intended to uh, listeners here in the U.S. Yeah. So ties are allowed in Japanese baseball. My first three seasons, 12 innings. After 12 innings, they would declare a tie. 
I've heard that a lot of the reason for that is so many of the fans that go to these games use mass transportation. And if the games don't end at a certain time, the trains shut down early and they wouldn't be able to get a lot of people home. That That's what I've heard, at least. It could also be that the rosters are or teams depth are a little bit thinner and starting pitchers pitch every once a week, every seven days. So to try to preserve pitching. Also, teams try and do that. Last year, we played 10 innings and we cut it off due to COVID restrictions. This year, I guess they either liked it or they felt that COVID would, would continue to be an issue. We have only did nine innings. So I want to say our team finished with maybe 14 ties, 15 ties, but we probably weren't even at the top of the league. And it's notable that a tie was allowed in the postseason. Can you explain why that was? So that's always been the case. Not that that's normal, but that's always been the case. So we play a best of three series against uh, my old team, the Rackton Eagles. We won the first game. Had we tied the first game and we lost the next game, we would have played the third game. So basically the tie is almost like a half game or a push for the higher seed. We were the two seed. They were the three seed. So... If we had tied, tied, we would have had to play a third game. But since we won the, the first game and then we tied, we, we closed them out at the top of the ninth, we didn't even hit in the bottom of the ninth because a win and a tie and then say we would have even lost in that third game, we would have still won. And we were sitting in the clubhouse. I, I stayed for the first series because I wanted to stay and support the team. We were all sitting in the clubhouse like, are we going to hit in the bottom of the ninth even though it doesn't mean anything? And sure enough, we did it. So I just thought that was odd. It's kind of funny. Like they don't have betting. Betting isn't legal there too. So you would think that if betting was legal on baseball, that they would never allow something like that. And Chiba Lote is in the Japanese Pacific League. Over in the Central League, I saw that the uh, Yomiuri Giants advanced over the Hanshin Tigers. How unexpected was that? I saw that Hanshin actually had the most wins in NPV this year. And uh, Yomieri actually lost more games than they won and went to the postseason. Yeah, you're right. I don't think it was that big of a surprise having played both teams. You know, all the teams here are very bunched up in talent. It's almost like the difference from year to year is very thin. I'll give you a good example of that. Both teams this year that won first place, that won the pennants, finished in sixth place last year. There's There's six teams in each division, 12 teams total. So that just goes to show you the parity and also just the fickleness sometimes of who finishes where. So it wasn't super surprising. And I would also equate the Hanshin Tigers and the Giants to, to the Red Sox Yankees as far as the history and the rivalry between those two teams. So, you know, we've seen, as we've seen time and time again, anything can happen in a series like that. And which team would be which with the Red Sox-Yankee equation? Yeah, I'd probably say the Tigers are the Red Sox. They got an old ballpark, a lot of history, raucous fans, but just, you know, a great a great place to watch a game. Whereas the Yomiuri Giants are either you love them or you hate them, and they're this big machine, so they probably would be the Yankees. And with machines in mind, the SoftBank Hawks have dominated the Japan Series, which is the, the World Series. I believe they've won four straight and maybe six out of seven or five out of six. They did not make it to the postseason this year. Is that a pretty big story in Japan? Again, there's a lot of parity. And for a few years, they didn't even win the pennant. They would finish second or third. But they're the team that always would kind of start slow, middle of the year. They, some of their high-priced guys would get hurt. But by the end of the year, they would just run teams over. So, yes, it was a little bit of a big story. But they really didn't play good baseball all year. They never really got on track. They were missing guys in and out of the lineup. And, and, and some of their players just got older. You know, in, in Japanese baseball in general, teams tend to hang on to guys longer just because I think it's kind of a cultural thing. And also because guys play for the same team for so long, free agency isn't really a, a big thing there. So their team just got older. And I think if you looked at the rosters and you, you were around and Jap- uh, Japanese baseball and PB baseball all the time, you wouldn't be surprised by the end result. Although they do have probably the best player in MPB, uh, Yuki Yanagida. And I do want to actually speak about, about him in a bit. But first, all of this parody aside, Frank, you know, if the Giants, I know the Giants are a historic team over there. If they do win this year, win the Japan series, what will fans think about a losing team? Like has a team that finished with a losing record ever want, gone on to win the Japan series? That would be a scandal here in the U.S., I think, if it happened. Yeah, I mean... I, I don't know. I'm not as well versed in the history of MPB baseball. 
I don't think teams, no, I don't think people would mind because uh, maybe because uh, it's the Giants too, you know, that, that, that they would kind of look past that. But no, I don't, I don't think it would be, it would be that big of a deal. Like I said, all these teams are, are pretty good. You know, they have an ace pitcher, Sugano, they have, they have star players. So I don't think it would surprise anybody, you know, if they beat uh, your Colt in the next round and then ended up running the table. Did you have an opportunity to watch the World Series at all? I did. I did. You know, they air all the World Series games there, um, usually about 9 a.m. or so. So a lot of times we have day games or practice on off days, which is a thing there. It would be on or be on in the weight room, you know, uh, when coming in for a night game. So so I, I did watch a lot of it. Not, you know, not all of it, but if I was in the clubhouse, I, I'd kind of sit and watch some. And, you know, I had uh, two former teammates and Michael Brantley and Josh Tomlin, guys I came up with with Cleveland. So I had a little bit of a rooting interest. And I know I could just imagine the trash talk going on between those guys. So that was kind of fun for me. Yeah, the start times over there are actually pretty conducive to watching. They don't end past midnight like they yeah. do on the East Coast here. And exactly. of course, one reason that they last so long here is because of the length of game. How long does the typical NPB game last? Yeah, I mean, they have the same problem there. I This year, it felt like every game, and again, we didn't play past nine innings because of the rules. We would play some four-hour games, though. I would say the average was probably over three, 310 or so. You know, same thing. I think guys swing at first pitch there a lot more. So sometimes you get games where it would roll. And teams don't tend to make a lot of left, right, uh, mid, mid-inning pitching changes. I, you don't see that a lot. Usually if a reliever has the inning, he has the inning. So that kind of keeps the games a little bit quicker. But uh, there's no pitch clock. There's nothing like that. So I, I would say it's, it's, it's pretty close to uh, MLB. Yeah, let's jump over to you mentioning a few minutes ago that uh, the biggest star there is, uh, I believe you said it was Masataka Yoshida. I said Yuki Yanagita for the Hawks. I said ah. he's probably he's probably one of the most dangerous players. Although I think you could certainly make a case for Masataka Yoshida, who my team is playing against, Orcs Buffaloes, although he took a fastball off the wrist at the end of or early October. So he's been out and he's out for this series now. Orcs Buffaloes also has Adam Jones, former Orioles outfielder, center fielder. So they have a good, they have a good team, but I would say Yuki Anahita is probably the most dynamic player, although he's, he's past, he's probably 31 or 32 now. So, you know, maybe not as dynamic as three or four years ago, but he, and then Seiya Suzuki who's also gaining some MLB interest. I would say those three are probably the best all around players in Japan position players. Yeah. Suzuki, who I understand either, I don't, I don't believe he's been posted yet, but that is, is the rumor that he will be posted. What, what can you tell us about him? Okay. So I haven't played him as much. I played against him, but one thing I should note about the schedule, it's kind of quirky is there's six teams in each division. We play the other five teams in the Pacific league 25 times a year. So that makes up 125 of our 143 games. So we only play the other division, the other six teams, the other division, three games, a home or, or an away every year, which is ridiculous, especially as a reliever to face the same teams 25 times and just be dying to see some new hitters. So I've, I played against him a handful of times. He's a very good player, right-handed batter, which there, there's not as many good right-handed hitters in Japan. A lot of them tend to be lefties just because the style, I think, you know, get out of the box and, and hit it and go, unless for that you're a power hitter. So he's a right-handed hitter good at defense, good arm, just a, a real solid player. I could see him making an impact. And he's also one of those guys that's on the, the right side of 30, where he, I think his best years are still ahead of him, where you look at a guy that came over, uh, Akiyama Shogo for the, for the Reds. When I faced him about 2017, 18, my first two years here, he was a lot faster, bat speed wise, center field coverage wise, where I felt like if he had left, Coming off his 200, he I think he broke Ichiro's record in 2016, the year before I got here. If he had came over then, I think he would have made a, a bigger impact. So all that's to say is I think Suzuki, if he if they post him now, it's good timing uh, age-wise. And I think he can have a good runway to get adjusted to the MLB and then still have some of his prime years. And who is the best pitcher currently in Japan? I would say the guy who my team is facing tonight, Yamamoto. His first name, I, his first name eludes me right now, but Yamamoto for Oryx Buffaloes. He's, he's, I want to say 22 or so, 23. Great arsenal of pitches, very good competitor, still young, still, still, still figuring things out, but 
he's got the best stuff and he's the guy who I would love to see most in MLB. Cody Senga is another pitcher with good stuff. He throws harder, very good fork ball, but he's a guy who leaves a lot of pitch. Like he'll, he'll hang that fork ball. Like it's one of those things where we will get three runs off him often when we play him. I'm like, how does this guy give up runs in this league with throwing um hundred miles an hour with that fork ball? But the other guy, Yamamoto, he is a true ace. I think. Yeah. Yoshi, I believe it might be. Okay, yeah. Speaking of Japanese pitchers, uh, Daisuke Matsuzaka retired and Masahiro Tanaka returned to Japan. I assume that those were both huge stories over there and maybe still are. I would say the Masahiro Tanaka was a bigger story. Daisuke's been over there a couple of years, but he's only pitched in the minor leagues the past couple of years. Uh, he, I don't think his stuff ever truly came back. He threw one batter. They let him throw one batter in his last game. I think he ended up walking the guy, but I haven't seen him pitch in Ichigun, which is the MLB version, whereas Nigun, which Ni is the number two, he'd been pitching in the minor league, so I hadn't seen him throw. Tanaka plays for my old team, the Rackton Eagles, his original team that he won 20-plus games for. You know, I think he was 21-0 and 0 or so in the year before he came over, maybe 2013, the year before he came over to the Yankees. He came back. We faced him maybe six times this year. So I saw him a good amount, and that was, that was a bigger story. And your teammate, uh, young teammate who just turned 20 with Lotte, is he the next Japanese superstar on the pitching side? Roki Sazaki, yes, he could be. He could be. He's gotten better every, every one of his starts. He was a rookie last year, and they treated him very smartly, but maybe a little too cautious because he didn't pitch at all his rookie year. They kind of just built him up. He, uh, he was feeling some stuff in his arm and very young, very slender, but they just kind of worked on his, his back, his legs, tried to get him strong and kind of unleashed him this year where he would pitch every 10 days. So they deactivate him off the roster. If you get taken off the roster, it's 10 days there. So he pitched every 10 days, but he started coming to his own. He pitched the first game of the uh, league playoffs against the Rackton Eagles the other day, throwing 100 miles an hour. His fork ball when it's on is the best one I've, I've seen or top three I've seen in my five years in Japan. He locates his fastball very well. He's composed. I think he could benefit from adding a slider or a cutter or something with break that goes horizontal or yeah horizontally because it would be better if he could pitch at 94 miles an hour and kind of preserve it, not feel like he has to reach back and throw 157, 159, 160, which is, you know, 98, 99. But again, he's 20 years, he's 20 years old. Like, you know, if he was an A ball, he would be a top 10 prospect, I think in, in MLB for sure. So if he ever decides that he would like to come to MLB and his club is willing to post him, it sounds like he would have quite the future here. Yes, and I, I think that's the plan. Uh, obviously, it's there's there's a, a way ways before that, but that's probably why they were cautious last year. For teams don't get the posting fees they used to when it was Dice K and those guys back in the day. You uh, Darvish get sixty million dollar a year posting fees, but they do they do get about twenty million. Is that right, or that percentage of the contract? I'm not I'm not quite sure, but I, I think it's up to twenty million. So yeah, I think that's the plan. And our pitcher. Yoshi-san, who used to pitch for the Mets, again, the first name, they don't really use first names there, so it's not like I'm just blanking on this totally, but Yoshi pitched for the Mets, he pitched for the Rockies here in the in the 90s. He's our pitching coach for the Chivalote Marines. He was Yu Darvis's pitching coach when he was a rookie, and he was, he was also the pitching coach for the fighters when Shohei Otani was there also. And so I asked him last year when Roki Sazaki was a rookie, I said, how does he rank compared to these two guys. And he, he, he said at th- that stage, Roki Sasaki, the guy for the Marines now, is better than both Darvish and Shohei Otani at that age as a pitcher. Wow. And with uh, Shohei Otani in mind, I guess he didn't dominate MLB this year, but he did things that no one had, had ever done before. How does that impact the way that people in Japan look at Japanese stars coming to the U.S.? Does it mean mean that they want to see more of them or that would they rather keep them home? Would li- they like Roki Sasaki to remain in Japan, you know, forever? Yeah, I think they like when guys go over to the MLB. I don't think that Otani's year changes anything for anybody. I think Otani's kind of looked at as a, a freak almost, as, an, as uh, you know, someone who's kind of in his own little bucket there. So I don't think that that changes people's impression in general, but 
they are supportive. They like watching MLB. You see Otani on posters, people cheering for him. You'll see, you'll see an Angels hat on the, on the subway here or there. So I don't think people are defensive of their guys. I think that they, they appreciate the fact that guys get their starts there and then they go over to the MLB. Or yeah, and, and a lot of times they'll come back and finish their careers. Like maybe we're like we're seeing with Tanaka now. I don't know what he'll do, but maybe we're seeing that now. So I think guys like when they're prideful when guys go over to the MLB from Japan. And you, of course, went to NPB from MLB, as a lot of players do. Far less uncommon is for an amateur to go over there. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you catch us up on how Carter Stewart is doing? I believe he is SoftBank that he signed with after not signing with the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, he's, he's doing well. You can see the good raw stuff there. I think he's developing pretty well from last year to this year. From what I've seen the first year, I didn't see him over there. But he, he had a few outings where he looked pretty good. You know, it's, it's a unique thing. I, I was talking about this in, in the dugout with Leonis Martin, who's one of my teammates, and uh, Brandon Laird, who has a little time in the Yankees, and his brother Gerald Laird was a longtime catcher in the MLB. And we were just talking about guys coming over and, and what we think about it. I don't love it. I think that it's a more short-term move. I think if you want to develop into a nine-figure player and someone who gets drafted in the first round of MLB draft like Carter did, I think your chances of really reaching your ceiling, especially what a lot of teams are doing now with the pitching and then both analytically and biomechanically and everything like that, I think staying stateside and playing the long game is how I would advise guys to do it. But I don't know all the ins and outs of Carter's situation, but he is going to soft bank. I'll say that he picked the right team because they do some things different developmentally. They've had driveline come over there and work with some of their guys. They do things different development than a lot of these other teams that it's more old school where it's just, you know, the pitching coach is telling you grip it like this and throw it like that. And, you know, you give such reverence to the coaches here that guys don't really go against the grain. They just have to kind of shake their head and follow the lead. Yes. Speaking of different, a piece of news that has caught my eye over here is that Shinjo has been hired as a manager over there, I believe, uh, for the fighters. He is, by my understanding, not your stereotypical Japanese personality. Yeah. I don't know him personally, but I saw some like interviews with him before I left and he seems a little bit out there. He's coming down in a like almost like Elvis, like costumes. And he doesn't want to be called Kantoku, which is the word for manager there or you know head coach. He wants to be called Big Boss. And he, he's given out business cards with the name Big Boss on it. So it's interesting. It's so different than how the steely managers here, no very stoic, no expression, not here in Japan. It's so different compared to that. I like, though, that they're infusing some personality, some character into the game there. I think you can use a little bit of that. He might be a little bit on the total opposite end of the spectrum to where I'm uh, skeptical about it a little bit. So we'll see. But yeah, it looks pretty interesting. Yeah, a former uh, New York Met outfielder, I believe, about a decade or two ago, along with his Japanese time. Yeah, Frank, we, I think, are running out of time here, but I do need to ask you about your own future. Okay. Uh, you are 37. It has been, uh, boy, almost two decades since you were pitching for the Harvard Crimson. So uh, how many bullets are left in the tank? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I'm 37. I wasn't able to finish the season necessarily because a low back issue that kept cropping up and probably had my worst year this year. So I'm going to take a little time and be with my family. Like I said, I wasn't with my family for most of the last nine months. So I got to stay home and be, be dad and not miss a game or a ballet recital or anything like that for a few weeks, at least a couple months. And then, and then I'll kind of look into things and talk to my wife, but uh, I'm not ready to say for sure yet, but I know when I'm done playing, I want to get involved and work with the team and, try and find a good situation where I could uh, make a difference and make an impact. Yeah. Do you think Frank that is on the coaching end or maybe in a front office? I, I would prefer a front office. I'm ready to change up my lifestyle a little bit as far as coaching. I've been playing, like I, like you said, for about almost two decades now. So I've always wanted to do front office stuff. When I was at Harvard, my sophomore year, I remember emailing David Forst and just saying, Hey, you know, I really, I'll come on intern for you with the A's. Like I'll do whatever. And he emailed me back about a week later. I was like, hey, coach says you're, you're still pretty good. Why don't you hang in there and keep playing a little bit? It's like 2004. Why don't you keep playing a little bit and try it out? And that year, I actually went to the Berkshires in Upper Massachusetts and played for Dan Duquette's team, former Red Sox GM. 
played for the Berkshire Dukes and started coming into my own a little bit and then had a good year back at Harvard junior year, went to Hawaii that year for the Hawaiian Collegiate Baseball League, pitched well and ended up signing as an undrafted free agent with the Cleveland Indians, uh, which I was very grateful for and, and thankful. Such a great player development organization. And here I am 16 seasons later trying to think about maybe the next steps now. And as you, you mentioned, or, or I mentioned, you and your family live in Tampa. I understand that there is a uh, front office nearby that likes uh, some young, smart minds. So maybe that's a, a good fit if uh, some of those guys are listening to the pod. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm open to anything. Like I said, I got to be a father for a little while, really step up uh, there. I owe my wife for taking care of our three kids. But after that, uh, be ready to get back into things. Right. And you did mention that you've been up uh, since 3 a.m. I think we are in the early afternoon. So I think, Frank, I will let you go and maybe you can get a little nap before uh, your wife gets home from work. So thank you much for coming on to Fangrass Audio. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hello again, listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you from his kitchen island in Tempe, Arizona. And I am continuing to squeeze all of the juice out of Ben Clemens, who's joining me today to talk more about, among other things, his top 50 free agents. What's going on, Ben? Uh, not too much. I'm on a publicity uh, binge, really. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're getting ready to do a trip here to Arizona. What are, what are some of your uh, goals for this brief fan graphs excursion to the the southwest desert compound oh i love fall league i'm very excited i've never been to the fall stars game so i guess that i love fall league and i'm looking forward to seeing some fall league games and i'm looking forward to not having it be 60 and strangely rainy like it is in california but mostly it's just gonna be fun to see everybody in person i think i've seen most fan graphs employees either one or zero times in my life yeah that's right like most of your tenure has just been occupied by the ongoing pandemic, but um, yeah. we're not going to do like a meetup or anything like that for readers, obviously, because of, or you would have seen that on the site, but uh, but yeah, we, we do want to spend a little bit of time uh, together as a group. We typically would do that around this time of year slash winter meetings, but I don't think that that's going to happen. So yeah, it seems unlikely. And weirdly, we didn't get our invitations to the GM meetings. <laughs> Now, I've been to a couple of the GM meetings because sometimes they are here in Phoenix and it is always at a really incredible resort, typically in Phoenix or Scottsdale when they do it. Uh, the one year I was uncredentialed and just sort of like weaseled my way into where I needed to be <laughs> when stuff was going on. Like suddenly I'm just in a scrum with Al Avila or whatever, even though I'm not technically supposed to be there. I just kind of <laughs> went over there the one day. Managed to find your way in, yeah. It's all stuff I shouldn't be saying in public, but um, this was a while ago at this point, like literally, I don't know, months ago. But yeah, so let's talk about your top 50 free agents. There's plenty of analysis on the post if folks are listening to this and haven't read it yet, they should go do that. Ben wrote comments for the top 25 guys and a Fangraphs staff member wrote comments, you know, in addition to that for every one of the, the 50 guys. And the way we go about doing it is like Ben came up with a rough draft of the list and then starts passing it around the rest of us at the site for feedback among like the full-time members. And so Ben, like, I'm curious, what was, if you can recall, how does the final iteration of this list differ from your first draft? And are there any themes present throughout the, the changes? I think that the main thing that changed throughout this draft or from the first draft to the final is that I was a little lower on pitchers who look like they might've made a meaningful change in 2021. Anthony DiSclefani, Alex Cobb, mm -hmm. I mean, Wade Miley did not make the final list, but I moved him up throughout the discussion. A lot of guys like that that are, to me, kind of fall into the interchangeable, nice, giant-style signing. Alex Wood is in this area as well. He didn't end up making the list, but those types of guys, I was pretty low on them because they seem reasonably replaceable to me. You, you know, teams might like one or another based on their pitching philosophy, but there are a lot of them. And the list is really heavy on kind of marginal starting pitchers. Good, but not Max Scherzer or, you know... Kevin Gaussman or Eduardo Rodriguez. Right. There's no Garrett Cole in this class or whatever. Right. And so I think a lot of those guys are just likely to get bigger deals than I thought. And that was probably the main feedback that I got was that I had some bats who are just so-so, like aging bats, who have better numbers in terms of like, you know, the amount of war they've produced or just their lines over the last three years than these pitchers. 
but teams are more likely to take a stab at these pitchers and see if see if there really is something there. Steven Matz is an example of somebody who got moved way up. Yeah. Or like, I mean, I think the there's a decent chance that Steven Matz is not that great, but he might be pretty good. And he looked pretty good in 2021 and some team will pay to find out. He's kind of towards the top of that level, but guys like that. The, yeah, the I think that it's tough when pitching itself is so sort of easy to evaluate, but there's also like something about is Robbie Ray, is this what Robbie Ray is now or is this the anomaly and what Robbie Ray has traditionally been throughout the rest of his career actually what he'll continue to be? And I'm dealing with this question all the time as it relates to prospects. Is this development in performance the result of real progression or is this just a statistical anomaly and this player is actually like what they've been the whole time. So like Hunter Bishop with the Giants is a a great example in the fall league right now where it's like Hunter Bishop had like three super hot weeks as a, as a college junior. And then the rest of his life has like just been kind of okay and maybe sort of frustrating. Right. And so, yeah, like there are guys on this list like that. And then you have the opposite side of the coin where like John Gray of the Rockies, the candidates who haven't been optimized yet in the way maybe Changes made to Wood and DeSclafani, et cetera, have been made. And now they are, in fact, a better version of their former selves. And then you have the John Grays of the world who might be able to make an adjustment that hasn't been made yet that causes them to take a leap. Right. Like if you pay John Gray for his current production, eh, right. I'm not going to pay him that much. But if you think he could be a guy, like a number two pitcher, like a legitimate number two starter for your team, maybe yeah, you pay like him a little more. Contending team. Right. It's, Funny, like, over the course of the recent history, the number of old veteran hitters who just keep hitting, whether it's, you know, Howie Kendrick or Azdrubal Cabrera, basically the guys who have contributed to the Nationals being (laughs) good during the last five years, like, that type of guy seems ultra consistent and steady, whereas pitching is so volatile, it can just get hurt. But also, at the very end of things, often the reason some of these teams peter out at the end is because they just haven't, they didn't have enough pitching. So right. it is like this necessary thing, but it's also a riskier pool to be uh, to be swimming in. In terms of like, I'm looking back at our Slack DMs now, the initial reaction I had to the first, my first pass at the list was, I mentioned Robbie Ray, who yeah. I told you to round down on, who I just thought like, and this is the type of thing that you would dig in more on is like, is there a real change happening here or was this just randomness? Yeah. And I basically, for Ray, I just believed that enough of what the Blue Jays did, which was getting rid of the extensive mechanical change that he tried in Arizona in 2020 that just went disastrously. He basically tried to turn into the like, what do you call it? Like elbow spiral, driveline, short arm delivery type pitcher and just couldn't like just had disastrous control. And the Blue Jays got him to stop doing that. He stopped it literally in 2020. I think that a lot of, if half of his strike throwing carries over to 2022, I think he'll be a pretty decent free agent. But yeah, that's that's definitely a question with him is, is he 2019, 2020, or 2021? Yeah, I think it's fascinating that he's like, it still feels fake that he's even in the Cy Young consideration, I, I suppose. Right? There's just something about that that I'm just like, no, we couldn't possibly do that. But yeah, like... He's just in that group of guys who has a shot at it, I suppose. Uh, what ultimately led you to stuff Scherzer as high as you did, even though he's coming off of a dead arm period and is 37? Yeah, I don't think Scherzer will get the fourth most money in the class, but I do think he's going to get the highest annual value if his medicals are clean. And, you know, that's uncontrollable. Teams might look at his arm and say, like, oh, actually, he has a frayed tendon. We don't want this. Or they might say, oh, wow, he threw a lot of innings and he literally just had dead arm. Okay, fine, we're good. And I think if he is okay medically, and again, on the outside looking in, all I can say is, here's a caveat if he's okay, then I would pay him $35 million a year for two years. That's that's what I put him down for. And I, I think teams might. I actually, uh, we did a draft on Effectively Wild today of basically like the MLB trade rumors contracts, and they had him at 3-120, which is amazing. I, I would argue that should maybe be your top free agent if you're going to pay a guy $40 million a year for three years. I just think that he's going to get a big enough one-year or two-year number that it's worth having him at the top of the list. If you want to win in 2022, he's probably the best player you can add unless you have a big hole at shortstop. Yeah, I, that, that makes sense to me. And he, for the longest time, has been like the, you know, the aliens are playing a baseball game against us for 
our sovereignty. Who do we want pitching? Like it's for me, that's been Max right. Scherzer for the last ten years, basically. Uh, you know, Verlander and Kershaw, I guess, have have been in the mix. Bumgarner too, but consistently, it's just been Scherzer. The fact that he had a dead arm is like totally anomalistic for him. He has totally uh, bucked the thoughts that he would be injury prone when he was an amateur. Like he's been doing it for well over a decade at this point. So yeah, yeah. not a normal 37 year old for sure. And it's kind of crazy. Like I thought he had terrible playoffs and he didn't, he had a two sixteen ERA in the playoffs and a three flat fifth. Like he was actually really good. Even though it felt like he was just pitching on fumes. He struck out like basically all the batters he faced 34% barely walked anybody. It felt like he sucked in the playoffs and yet he was one of the best pitchers in the postseason. Who were some of the the individuals who you had the most difficult time placing? Who you look at it and you're still not sure they're in the right spot? The projection that I feel worst about like post hoc is probably Chris Bryant. I just have no idea what's going to happen with Chris Bryant. I think that the combination of his medium age and the fact that he's had enough years in a enough years of good production that I don't think the narrative of like or the the idea that he might just be a bad bat now is really in play. He had a bad 2020, but every season aside from 2020 has been pretty solid. And he even performed acceptably well moving to San Francisco and trying to learn how to play the toughest right field in baseball on the fly. That I'm comfortable with him getting a longish term deal. I <laughs> changed the number of years that I thought he might get between four and eight, like repeatedly, and changed the average annual values with those. I ended up with uh, with 825. And I think that's probably high, honestly. Like, Looking at it today, and I put up this list out yesterday, I'd probably bump that down to six or seven at 25. I think he's just, he has one of the, the strangest markets because there's a bunch of shortstops who are the best bats. And then Starling Marte, who's 30, at, or not 30, he's a little older and plays center field and has kind of a, a game that lends itself to a shorter average annual value, I think. And then there's Bryant, who doesn't have an obvious comp unless you think Chris Taylor is kind of the same, but I think his bat's just way better. So I, I found it hard to peg exactly where he should go. Mark Kana's on that list as well. Yeah. I think Mark Kana could get a lot more money than, say, our crowdsourced uh, numbers suggest. Yeah, he's he's always been better than he is, like, sexy and flashy. And it's, yeah, I mean, this an incredible outcome for a Rule 5 pick, to be sure. Um, just seeing him in, like, big league spring training games, there's plus bat speed here you can I mean, we just watched adam duvall play center field in a world series like mark canna could probably play out there a little bit like yeah i think there's i think he's he's a good player javi Baez was the one where i was like i wouldn't if i were tasked with this from scratch he'd be the one where i was not sure what to do at all right as horrendous as he has been at times he's still consistently been a four win player basically except for during the shortened 20 season. Yeah, and I'm mostly okay just tossing out the 2020 season in terms of, right. like, if somebody had a really, really bad outlier, I still look at their career line and their line over the last three years, but it's a short season and a weird one. Right. Yeah, it's just still an absolutely fantastic shortstop defender who is going to run into 30 bombs. Like, that's still just a three or better win player, it turns out. So that's a that's a big one, but obviously like his approach makes him feast or famine for long stretches of the year that seem like they might do damage to your team's chances because of how cold he is at times. I think maybe I've mentioned this on the podcast before that there have been the football outsiders folks did a study on to what kind of running back are you if you right. average four and a half yards per carry and your variance carry to carry is, you know, nine yards, one carry, one yard on the next versus the guy who is consistently four and a half yards every time, like the more consistent runner is actually the better player, even though statistically they're they are similar in like all these other ways. I don't know if that's necessarily true for baseball players or not, but yeah, Kevin and I actually got asked this question on Chin Music last week and we pondered on it for a while and didn't come up with a good answer. The other players who I'm interested in who there seems to be like there are certain types of players who the industry doesn't seem to value and yet they continue to perform and uh, at times like even in key moments like I it is just my theory that the quality of the stuff that you're facing in the playoffs is much better not just because those teams are better and are likely to have better pitching but there's something about the adrenaline that's like making Aaron Loop throw 96 in the playoffs and so like Obviously, like Eddie Rosario is a great example of this. Corey Dickerson is a great example of this. Right. Avisayo Garcia is a good example of this, where 
their corner guys with below average approaches who still seem to hit and hit for power, even with a lower OBP. They have the hitting talent to do damage in the playoffs because of like that skill, the skill to hit basically right. that other guys don't. That when certain players, maybe Michael Conforto might perhaps, you know, be a player like this who against a lower subset of pitching during the regular season perform on paper in a way that feels more stable than some of the guys I just mentioned. But when like push comes to shove talent wise, you ultimately want the dudes who can put the bat on the ball and strike it with power, even if they are a little swing happy. I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that, or if you have any on what separates the guys who have a lousy approach and still perform from the ones who have a lousy approach and that is the death of them. Yeah. Um, I think Rosario is actually kind of an interesting case in this because he had like a crazy playoff run, obviously. But do you know the Braves were pinch hitting for him with Orlando Arcia in the 2021 playoffs? Right. <laughs> I found that out today. The, the first game of the playoffs, they pinch hit for Eddie Rosario with Orlando Arcia to get a better lefty-righty matchup. And that just like, like if there really is something there, they didn't think there was anything there even coming into these playoffs. And yeah, they rode the hot hand, which is very smart. The thing that... I think really separates those guys though. And the reason that I have Avi Garcia so high on this list, as opposed to, I mean, Rosario did not make my list, though I do think he'll get, you know, decent money. I think he'll probably settle for like a one or two year deal somewhere, maybe probably making eight figures overall, is Avi Garcia just has enough tools and like more so than a lot of these other guys, he's just completely tooled out. And he had, like you said, bad approach. But I've just heard from enough you know, people in baseball generally that like people are less surprised than I used to think Avi Garcia was just like not that good and had one good season in Chicago and everything else after that was just, you know, random fluctuations of a low skill level player. But it just seems like enough teams have bought into the fact that he's this like toolsy that it's okay that he can make it work with a bad approach. His approach is not completely disastrous. He swings a ton, but he does seem to mostly swing a ton at strikes. And so that's what makes it work with a like an okay strikeout rate. And I don't think he's a good defender, but I think teams think he's a good defender, if that makes sense. He can really run. Yeah, like he's, he's just he is one of those guys who instantly, while he was a White Sox prospect, you were just like, holy crap, look at this giant, strong 6'4 guy who's putting down plus run times and clearly has at least plus power. And yeah, there's just like something about so And, you know, Luis Robert is in this bucket, too, where I'm just, like, waiting and waiting for the fact that he has one of the higher chase rates in baseball to just bring him back to the pack, to just make him, his career shape look more like Byron Buxton's, basically. Right. Where, hey, there's a problem here that prevents this guy from being one of the top five players in baseball, even though he's still very good. He's just not, he has the talent to be that, but not be that because of his approach piece and it just hasn't happened yet and uh, you know sifting through guys in the minors who they're just guys who trick you and they actually can't do it and then there are guys who seem somehow to overcome it so this is like one of those nuts i'm trying to uh to crack right now i do think it's interesting too i don't know how much to buy into this but there were there was reasonably well-sourced reporting that the brewers were considering giving garcia a qualifying offer Mm. and that's kind of wild to me I mean, I, I do think that he'll end up getting a $20 million-ish amount in the end, but I didn't expect it to be via QO. And the Brewers especially, who are very penny-pinching in these kinds of ways and generally try to manufacture cheaper versions of that. Like, they signed Garcia to a two-year $20 million deal, and now they're considering giving him basically one twenty. I, I was very surprised by that, and it is interesting to me. He's someone on my list who I had lower going into it, and enough people said, eh, this guy looks like... Would you really rather have Michael Conforto, an example that you use, so it's very apropos, on a one-year deal than Avi Garcia? And I thought, well, like, probably not. <laughs> probably not. The thing that I like a lot more about Conforto is that, you know, you can see a much more of a long-term projection there. He's a little younger, and if he returns to form, you could you could see that working out for longer. But if I had to pick somebody to plug in right field in 2022, I think I'd take Garcia. All right. I want to talk for a minute about Saya Suzuki, who is rumored to perhaps be posted by uh, the Hiroshima Carp. This guy's hit really well over in Japan. It just sort of falls under my umbrella to do most of the guys who are coming over from uh, Asia or Cuba because they are, in effect, prospects. Uh, even right. though Suzuki's 27, there's 
Like I'm just sourcing on young Japanese players anyway. Might as well be the one who does it for the guy who's 27 or whatever. Yeah. So what's like a, a hugely important piece of information if you're really trying to assess someone over there that you'd want in your back pocket when you're making a decision about signing them? Like we're just sort of missing. There is a leap to be made here clearly in terms of the quality of stuff that anyone is like, this is the commonality that the Asian players all, all share. It's that like they have to make a skill level leap that some of them have done in an incredible way. Right. And some of them can't possibly do like Yoshi Sutsugo's career in Japan was pretty incredible. He seemed like a high probability, at least like viable platoon piece for right. the Rays, you know, it would turn out, but whoever wanted him. Hassan Kim. Slightly different situation, but yeah. Right. Like, definitely the leap that he had to make was more sizable. Definitely more defensive value happening there. His Zips projections were ridiculous. Like, wanted him among the top of the free agent class a couple years ago, basically just based on the major league equivalencies that Zips is running for his KBO stats. And he really, really struggled to deal with, like, the leap and stuff and had you know, a, a pretty medium season, so... Yeah, I guess one thing I would look for is how they do against basically good pitchers. The pitching in both NPB and the KBO is incredibly uneven. I mean, Masahiro Tanaka is pitching there, and he could be pitching in the majors right now, and he'd be fine, I'm pretty sure. And they've got some, like, young, incredible arms over there, and then there are a lot of people just, just past being teenagers who are pitching there, particularly in Korea. The pitching, you know, there's less of a farm system, like... The NPB does have a farm system. Korea, you'll have guys who literally were just picked in the high school draft pitching. I think sometimes at least, not always. They do, yeah. It's a lot of 5'11 lefties with cut and carry and a breaking ball. Like those high school arms go in the first round of the KBO draft. Yeah, so doing some type of filtering for pitchers that have like some semblance of major league stuff I think would be interesting because the leagues do promote guys who can hit the the more like mid-80s fastball and like tons of funk and splitters type So. I can tell you that I have tried to do exactly what you're doing, that the conversion from miles per hour to kilometers per hour has, makes it so that the the data that I have access to basically breaks when I try to limit it to a certain... Because some of the data is input as miles per hour and some of it is kilometers per hour. And so like for me to limit my pool to 93 plus mile an hour fastballs to see how this guy performed against them... I am like cutting out some of them and including like 144 kilometer per hour fastballs, which aren't actually right. That's rough. So, but yeah, like the, the average fastball velocity in NPB in 2021 was 90.8 miles per hour. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty significant leap. And yeah, like you said, there are guys over there who are throwing hard and the ones who are doing so are almost always imports like Raydel Martinez, who is Cuban, and Tiago Vieira, who threw 103 over here, but it didn't play. Like, he threw really hard, but it just wasn't meaningful enough for him to actually seize control of a bullpen spot here in the States. And so, like, the Mariners and the White Sox just sort of moved on from him. And then he became a dominant closer in Japan. Like, this has been going on for decades where, like, Mark Kroon went over to Japan, threw 100 miles an hour, and was, like, an utterly dominant closer for a while. Right. And that's just, like, not always enough over here. So, uh, yeah, Saya Suzuki, there's definitely risk that uh, he bottoms out just because until anyone does it, like, it could be someone from AAA over here, too, but there's just something about that leap against big league stuff that makes, you know, it's tenuous. And there's a little less margin for error with Suzuki because yeah. he is right, right. That's it's the that's a big problem there is that if he ends up being a platoon piece, then he's the wrong side of it. Mm. I think if he were left-left with the same rough numbers and you could ho- hope for the bigger side of the platoon more frequently, like if it turns out that he's not his projections and that what he is is a playable corner guy, but particularly against opposite-handed pitching, eh, like that's tough as a righty. Yeah, all if he were the exact same, if we're looking at two players who are the same in literally every way, except one hits left-handed and one hits right-handed, you want the left-handed guy. Yeah, and particularly in this kind of cuspy roster spot place, people can find right-hitting platoon outfielders. Like That's something that is available for cheap in the U.S. Yep. In just various ways. And so I think that the reason that I, I have him lower than every other uh, 
top 50 free agent ranking thing. And basically, like, I just think there's enough risk and the downside risk for a right-right outfielder without plus speed is just, like, who can't play center basically is, is not good. Right. Yeah. And so in having conversations with folks in the run-up to lists here, and again, just sort of getting into the minutia of the process is like, where, if I know a guy's going to be player X, where should I value him on this prospect continuum? And so another interesting case lately that I've been throwing around at the field is Jordan Luplo. All right. So like Luplo crushes lefties in a, in an impactful way. He has less utility because it's like left field, first base. He only is going to have the platoon advantage about a third of the time because of the way the pitcher population is shaped. But he he's definitely a big leaguer. He can have a meaningful impact on your team. You know, Mike Brasso hitting a home run off of Aroldis Chapman, etc. Right. But also, he was just freely available to the Rays in essence. Like, yeah. So the industry doesn't seem to put a ton of emphasis on the role that he plays. He is still playing a big league role. His triple slash line on paper looks pretty good in part because the Rays have the roster flexibility to allow to put him in positions where he's you know, likelier to succeed Yeah, they're very than if you were just playing every day. And so like, is that a 40? Is it a 40 plus? Like this is the heuristics for it are basically like, you know, an everyday guy is a 50 or better where you're just like on the field basically the whole time. And right. then whatever the grade above 50 is, is just like how much better than that baseline are you? mapped to the, you know, the the curve of war output, basically. Yeah. And then anything below 50 is I'm trying to describe a role for the guy where like 45 is the Freddie Galvis, Jose Iglesias incomplete player, but also excellent in some ways type of utility guy. And Seth Smith and Matt Joyce type of platoon outfielders are also a 45. And then the flip side of that coin, which is like what Jordan Luplo is, is basically a 40. But is there enough oomph going in, you know, that I want to say 40 plus? Anyway, like, what are the chances that Saya Suzuki is better than Jordan Luplo? Right. I think they're fair. I, I think they're decent. But like you said, Luplo is essentially freely available. It's an interesting spectrum because you get better than Luplo by a decent amount. And then you're Nick Castellanos. And then right. you are a rare good again. Yep. There's definitely like an interesting amount of margin where if you're a good enough right-handed hitter, then it's suddenly, oh, well, you're just a good hitter and good hitters are in demand. Like truly good hitters, elite hitters. And then uh, when you fall into the platoon area, then it just falls off really quickly. The right way to handle that is probably some kind of distributional thing. It's like, you know, there's a 25% chance he's a good hitter and a 50% chance he's a platoon guy and a 25% chance that, oh, it doesn't work. It's, it's Yoshi Tsutsuga or something. That's probably a better way to think about it. I basically just said teams aren't going to pay this much for a potential platoon bat this offseason, given the way that they've been handling their money. All right. So last thing on free agency before we spitball on some other nonsense is Scott Boris, clients litter the top of this market. Do you just have any general thoughts on how that might cause things to unfold? I think that it'll probably at the very least slow the process for the top of the market guys until after we have a CBA. But the names are Seeger, Scherzer, Bryant, Rodon, Conforto, who else is it? Semyon, and I think Castellanos, and that might be the list. Yeah, I mean, the... Oh, but that's a hell of an awesome list, yeah. <laughs> the knock on Boris in his free agent neg negotiations has always been that he'll overplay his hand for marginal guys sometimes. You know, he'll... The guy who doesn't need to hold out for a better deal will hold out too long and then take a crappy deal in February or something. I'm not going to say that's not going to happen to these guys. If it happens to somebody, it's Conforto, right? <laughs> like, yeah, probably. Like, he's going to turn down the QO, and then in February, the Mets are going to be offering 117, and he's going to be like, no. I could see that, that Conforto's market developing slowly. Especially because he seemed like a one-year rebound deal candidate anyway. Like the Perfect QO pillow pretty... contract right, candidate. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it makes so much sense that, like, would you commit to five years of Michael Conforto now? I mean, for the pr right price, you would, but... I don't think he and you will agree on what that right price is because there's just so much uncertainty. I think the yeah. main thing that Boris makes happen is that his clients never sign at the same time. Like they always sign like one signs and another signs a day later, another signs two days later. There's kind of an enforced spacing because I think for all these big guys that we're talking about, like top 20 free agent types, he is, it's not the Boris group, but Scott Boris doing the, the final negotiations and he just can't do two at once. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how many phones you have. It's very impressive, yes. He's he's very uh, 
He's very prolific, but he can't actually be talking to two owners or two GMs at once. And so I, I think that it'll kind of slow down the, the torrid pace. Did he have Rendon and Cole? Is that right? Yep. Yep. And they signed like 24 hours apart. Right. And not even, and here we have a situation where like some of his players are occupying the same space on the market. Right. Like Seeger and Semien are arguably like, you know, competing with one another for contracts too. Yeah. They're, if he had Correa and Seeger, that would be even more interesting. I feel like there's some split in that, uh, like Semien teams who want a shorter term second base plugin will look for him too. But there's definitely some overlap there. If you want to sign Corey Seager, you should probably be kicking the tires on Marcus Semien too. All right. The last thing I wanted to talk about, uh, just sort of going through without having really done any prep is we have this window now where players are coming off of the 60-day IL. They're back to occupying a 40-man roster spot. And then the rosters have to be cut down to 40 ahead of the Rule 5 draft. And so there's this window of time where some teams have an overage of guys that they have to make like a transaction to clear. Otherwise, they will lose some of them for nothing. And some of them, there are always just players who aren't going to make it via, you know, there's not a team that wants to trade for them and they're not one of the 40 best players on in a team's organization, in their opinion. And so they are just going to come off the 40-man like the Outrider or whatever. But there are a couple teams who have actual crunches that they didn't really diffuse sufficiently during the summer before the trade deadline. And we also have the Oakland A's who have been competitive for the last several years and now based on uh, rumors that were reported, I think either today or yesterday about them listening to a bunch of the guys in their on a bunch of the guys in their rotation Mm -hmm. and like Bob Melvin leaving for San Diego and just rumors in baseball basically are that the A's are going to rebuild. So during this window of, you know, a transactional period that we might have here, a flurry of stuff that'll happen before the theoretical lockout. Let's find some some homes. What are some good fits for some of the guys who Oakland might be willing to move on from? So if you're looking at like the A's roster resource page, that's what I'm doing right now is looking at the payroll tab on the roster resource Ditto. page. Who do you think are the likely candidates to move if Oakland is in, indeed engaging in a, in a pretty serious rebuild? Everyone named Matt. So both Matt's. I mean, they might as well have packed their bags. I, I think it's very unlikely that either of them plays another game for the A's. They've just, they've telegraphed that. I think the top few pitchers, so like Manaya, Bassett, I guess Montas, both Manaya and Bassett are expiring contracts, as it were. They're done after 2022. And Montas has two years left. So those are some things that the A's will get a little bit of value for. But if they're not trying to compete next year, they should jettison them. And I mean, maybe they'll try to compete next year, but it sounds like there's a pretty fair view that they're going to be taking a step back. And so those five players, I think, are the, the most obvious names to move to me. I think the idea in moving Chapman and Olsen is that they're the people who you can really get value back for. And if you're truly trying to kickstart a, like, being good for the next five years rather than at the expense of 2022, well, you're not going to do that by trading Sean Benaya. Like, you're not just not going to get enough back there. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but those are the, those are the names that I see the most. Yeah, I agree. Um, those guys, the hitters, Chapman and Olsen, are so deep into ARB. Their projected ARB figures are are both around $10 million. And, you know, that's a pretty sizable number for a team like the A's, who, again, like, seem like they're positioning themselves to maybe move or be sold or whatever. There's all sorts of other stuff that's impacting what I think ownership there is trying to do and in reducing payroll. They also have a bad farm system. The A's just haven't drafted very well lately. A lot of their guys have been hurt. AJ Puck is basically reduced to... They drafted one of the best quarterbacks in football. <sighs> right. Like that's a that's a, a stroke of bad luck that that occurred. They put all their eggs in the Robert Poisson basket and that, ha- you know, in a recent international class and that hasn't really worked out so far. I do think like after Tyler Soderstrom and Pedro Pineda at the very, very top of the system, things, there are some contributors below that, but it's pretty thin in terms of like real impact guys. Mm-hmm. And so there are some other logical reasons that they might want to do that, which brings me back to the 40-man crunch situation because even though the Rays traded, they basically paid a premium to acquire Nelson Cruz in the form of two uh, near-ready arms because they were trying to diffuse some of the pressure on their 40-man, but they they still have a ton. Right. And Cleveland, too. Cleveland has done one thing that I anticipated that they would do, which is uh, with Austin Hedges and Roberto Perez 
getting deeper into ARB slash having a fairly expensive player option as far as Cleveland is concerned, that they were only going to retain one of those guys that they declined the option on Perez. And so like other than having some catching that they need to fill in, they're also in a 40-man crunch situation, mostly surrounding corner outfield candidates for them. Now, they've been trying to platoon guys for years, hasn't really worked out. And now they have another wave of those types of players uh, coming. So those are the two orgs who, as like we're looking to find roster equilibrium basically in with the A's rebuilding, Cleveland and Tampa theoretically wanting to compete next year, having an overage of prospects that the A's could sure as heck use. What of the those A's guys that you listed do you think are the most interesting fits for potentially Cleveland and Tampa Bay. And I also think that Brian Reynolds is a name on both those teams, like a uh, wish list, perhaps. That makes that's sense. That's an interesting fit too, in terms of just eyeballing Cleveland and Tampa and what they might do over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. So one thing that complicates things with Cleveland is that they're not exactly a big fan of spending money. Yeah. So their payroll for 2021 was what, like $50 million. Yeah. And their estimated 2022 payroll for us right now is a uh, $50 million. <laughs> And that doesn't leave you a lot of room to add a Matt Chapman or Matt Olson at $10 million. That's 20% of their payroll. I think that maybe they'll go up. It doesn't seem like they've shown any willingness to. And so that puts them in the market for the pitching. Or the A's eating some of the money, which seems unlikely as well. So I could see them trading for some of the pitching. The Rays have a different problem, which is that they can't use Matt Chapman. I don't really think. Like, it'd be nice, but they just have so many moving parts in the infield anyway. And Franco seems likely to just be the shortstop, which right. leaves Wendell and Yandy Diaz and the rest of those guys to rotate around the other two infield spots. And so, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I think that's just a seems like an inefficient use of resources there because they have these guys who they can cobble together a third baseman out of that's pretty good. And so trading for a third baseman is pretty good without the need to cobble together. Just doesn't make any sense if you can do it. I could see them trading for Olsen, but they... Yeah. They haven't done a lot of those deals. They could. I think Olsen's bat is the kind of bat where you say, well, whatever, I don't need to worry about platooning. I'm just going to plug this guy in every day. It's perfect. And the Rays are willing to do that, obviously. They you know, they have this reputation as running every lefty-righty platoon, but most of their positions are just you know, full-time starters, and then they kind of make some positions out of several guys. But I think that would make a lot of sense for them. I think another kind of not quite as 40-man crunchy, but an interesting landing spot for Olsen would be the Yankees. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if they're in quite as bad of a, a spot, given that they they cleared up some stuff with their deadline deals. You know, they, they traded in quantity, not quality. Well, actually, they traded in quantity and quality, this deadline. But I think they've cleared up their crunch some. But if you could give the A's, say, like Luke Voigt plus a, a serviceable prospect for Olsen, I think that becomes more interesting to the A's because the A's do like to compete somewhat. Yeah. And Voigt would be surplus to the Yankees if they get Olsen. Yeah, you could argue Oakland might view that as not a neutral move, but but one where they're at least replacing the card in their hand with Luke Voigt, who either gives them an opportunity to like be good or be injured and let them see if someone else is good, which right. has been what Luke Voigt is doing. That would be pretty interesting. The The Yankees farm system is, is pretty flush as well. So that that makes sense. The, the Tampa situation with Olsen, I agree with you that like G-Man Choi has been a non-tender candidate based on like just sourcing and kind of eyeballing stuff for the last yeah. couple of years. Uh, his projected ARB figure is about 3.5 million. So if they were to non-tender uh, G-Man, which, you know, would kind of be a bummer, but you could see it possibly happening. That's, you know, 3.5 million that comes off. Then you have the Kevin Kiermeyer deal, uh, which is 12 million next year. I think there, there were rumors last year that he was part of some of the Willie Adamas discussion that they have. Or yeah. that they had. There's like, enough a smoke of, around Kiermaier getting moved that I'm sure they've discussed it. Yeah, I think like he his deal just balances his balances some of the money in some of these trades. You could I think it's pretty reasonable to think that maybe a, a bigger dollar spending team might still be interested in the things that he does really well, which he still plays yeah. the hell out of center field basically and would be willing to pay a premium for that if it's not a thing they have on their roster right now, but considered valuable. And maybe you have like a, a three team deal that goes on or something like that where even though the Rays have acquired Matt Olson, their payroll has remained close right. like to the neutral. Mets could use a center fielder. And they could use GM, but yeah. Right. The Rays have like a lot of 
prospects who the A's have tended to like. Like the A's are the team that used a rule five pick on Kai Tom last year. So the fact that Jonathan Aranda really performed or that like Diego Infante really performed, these guys who have been passed over in the rule five already, some of that is because of the weird nature of the 2020 season, had gigantic offensive 2021s. You know, we saw Pittsburgh take flyers on guys like this in their deal with the Yankees getting like Hoy Park and uh, Diego Castillo back, like guys who had like are the Lamont Wades of the Rays basically to try to take flyers on a number of these guys and see which of them stick by giving them an opportunity to play right. in replacement of like these guys who are conceivably going to get shipped out. And then like the pitchers, the Oakland pitchers, everyone needs them. So I don't know, like it's, I don't think we could be specific yeah. enough. As to say. I think there's no point in projecting a market for them. Like yeah, everyone would love a solid number three starter. I think all of them can do a decent in imitation of that at the very least. Maybe there's some upside with Bassett. Maybe there's some upside with Frankie Montes. Maybe there's some upside with Manaya. I don't know. They, all of them have interesting things about them, but there will be an endless market for those guys. I think the tougher market will be for Olsen and Chapman because you need a team that needs that particular spot and also wants to pay that much money and also wants to get a guy who's there for two years. There are those teams. I think Chapman is actually going to be trickier than, you, than we think just because there aren't a lot of contending teams that have a pressing need at third base. Right, I was, and he's when I was looking through this, struggled. Yeah, he struggled. He's probably still a good player, even if his bat isn't there, just because he's such a good defender. But not enough so over the alternatives that it's like a slam dunk. Like the Rays are a good example. The Rays don't have a, a great third baseman. And if Matt Chapman were a five-war kind of guy, then sure. But if you think he's like a right. two-and-a-half, three-war guy, eh. I think the Blue Jays might be interested, especially if they don't retain Semyon, just because they're like maybe one infielder short there. But I don't know. Like, do they have enough of a crunch or do they have the right guys that the A's want and also want to give those guys up? It's not super clear. Yeah. Just looking at the, the team abbreviations uh, as we wrap up, like I guess I could see Dombrowski and Philly doing something. There's probably an, an asymmetry in philosophy there that might lead to something happening. Uh, but like with Alec Bohm having struggled and really kind of being a first baseman, the universal DH may be pushing Reese Hoskins to DH and Philly's infield defense over the last couple of years being pretty yeah. bad like that's sort of an interesting thing mccutcheon coming off the books there too gives them a little bit more room if that if that's a problem it shouldn't be for the fills but seems yeah, like it see might be and then yeah all right well there you have it that's that's us spitballing on a's rebuild stuff we've run long already so i will say for ben clemens i have been eric longenhagen thanks to dylan higgins for producing see you again next time <laughs> i like it This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Frank Herman for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider recommending it to a friend. It helps us out. And check out the Fangraphs newsletter. It's free and a great way to keep up with all the great things we have going on over at the site. Have a good weekend. We'll talk to you next time.